Boys and girls, if you would have been part of the nation of Israel as they traveled to the wilderness, then whenever they camped, the tabernacle would always be at the center, always in the middle, and all of the tents would be arranged around the tabernacle. And then once in a while, probably every day, you would see someone actually leaving their tent, accompanied with an animal, and they would make their way to the tabernacle. And why? It's because the teaching of Moses had convicted them that they had sinned against the Lord. But Moses also taught them there was a remedy for those who transgressed the law of God. So in other words, on the one hand, he would teach them the law of God. On the other hand, he would preach the gospel to them. And he would teach them that if any man or woman had sinned, that there was a remedy for it, that they could come to the tabernacle, which was God's tent where he dwelt, that they could come to the priest, and that the priest then would sacrifice that animal in their place. And that on the basis of that sacrifice, on the basis of that shed blood, the priest would pronounce to them that their sins were forgiven. A congregation, and boys and girls, you need to understand that for an Israelite to do that required the grace of God because everyone knew when they saw you walking, when they saw you coming to the tabernacle, coming to the place where they could meet God, coming to that place where they could obtain the forgiveness of sins on the basis of the sacrifice of that animal. Everyone knew that you had sinned. It was like a, a public confession of sin. And that showed you that the grace of God had prevailed upon that person. Because by nature, we are inclined to hide our sin, to excuse our sin. But the grace of God makes us honest. But what's important, and that's the point I'm getting to, is in order for that Israelite to obtain that sense of divine pardon, to experience the grace of God, he had to come to the place appointed by God. He had to come to the high priest. It wasn't enough for him to, to merely stand by the opening of his tent and to merely arrive at a mental conclusion. Well, there is God's appointed sacrifice. The lamb is slain. I have sinned, and therefore... My sin is pardoned. No. No, he had to come. He had to physically leave his tent. He had to come and he had to meet God, as it were, at that altar by way of the priest. And that was the way in which he would secure the assurance that his sin had been forgiven. It's that coming that I want to focus on. Now, if you've listened, if you've read attentively the passage we read, perhaps you've noticed that Christ uses that word over and over again. I would encourage you, fathers and mothers, to review this chapter with your children and see how often Christ uses that word coming. He that cometh unto me. All that the Father has given unto me, he says, shall come to me. 
and he that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And so that coming is obviously a very important word by which Christ describes the exercise of faith, whereby he emphasizes that true faith is not merely an intellectual conclusion. One plus one equals two. But that in true faith, there is a going out of myself. There is an, an active coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to secure the pardon of our sins. And it's that coming to Christ. Not just once, but over and over again. It's that coming to Christ which describes the most essential and foundational exercise of spiritual life. And so with God's help, I'm going to try to expound to you which I consider one of the most important texts of all of Scripture. John 6, verse 45. Let's read it together. John 6, verse 45. And we do that, of course, also by way of preparing ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And, of course, the focus of this text will be, and my task will be, to explain to you what spiritual life is. What is the life of the believer? So we, that we can examine ourselves in light of also this passage, whether we belong to those who by grace have taken their refuge to Christ. So we read in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, and this is our text, every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. And so in that passage, in that profound statement, Christ sets before us the Father's method of salvation. The Father's method of salvation. And boys and girls, you will notice in our text, those of you that can read, that there are three verbs, right? What is a verb? You, some of you know that's an actual word. Three verbs are in this text, and our points are related to those three verbs. So the text tells us about sinners who hear the word of the Father. Every man that hath heard of the Father. Secondly, sinners who learn the will of the Father. Every man that hath heard and hath learned of the Father. And finally, sinners will come to the Son of the Father. So hearing, learning, and coming. Those are the three action verbs, the three action words, the three critical verbs in this text. And so the Father's method of salvation. Sinners hear the word of the Father, sinners learn the will of the Father, and sinners will come to the Son of the Father. Congregation, John 6, of course, is a very familiar chapter. We just read it together. And the occasion for this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which he revealed himself as the bread that had come from heaven, the living bread, was, of course, the occasion of the feeding of the multitude. And the people were so impressed by what they saw, they came all the way around to Capernaum to be 
near Christ and to hear more of him. And of course, Christ perceived that many followed him for carnal reasons. They followed him because they were fed by the loaves. But what Jesus often would do, he would take such an occasion and he would use it as an opportunity to instruct the people and to reveal himself even further. In chapter 4, he did that with the Samaritan woman. She came for one reason only, to the well in Samaria, and that is to obtain physical water. And Jesus used that opportunity to teach her about the living water, and ultimately, he used that opportunity to reveal himself to this woman. And likewise, here in chapter 6, he uses this occasion to further unveil to this people who he is, but also to speak about the very essence of true spiritual life. And so in this passage, he, in multiple ways, emphasizes that. And one of the ways in which he speaks about true believers is those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. Of course, not physically, but spiritually, which is the focus, of course, of the Lord's table as well. We know that the bread on the table represents the flesh of Christ, and the wine represents the blood of Christ. And so what does Jesus mean when he talks about those who eat his flesh and drink his blood? He is saying that the very essence of spiritual life is that a believer feeds upon his sacrifice. In his sacrifice, the believer finds his salvation. In that sacrifice, he finds nourishment for his soul. In that sacrifice... He finds refreshment for his weary soul. And so Christ is teaching that his sacrifice, the sacrifice by which his flesh was nailed to the cross, by which his blood was shed, that that sacrifice is the very core of the gospel, which will be set before us again uh, next week. And so in verse 53, just beyond where we read, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you. And boys and girls, you know that when Jesus said, verily, verily, he meant to communicate to those that heard him, what I'm saying is very, very important, very essential. In the Greek, it actually says, amen, amen. I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's quite a statement. You have no life in you. So he's saying the very nature of that spiritual life, of which we will speak also in this morning, the very nature of that life is that it gravitates towards me. It gravitates towards my sacrifice. It can only find peace in that sacrifice, in that finished work. Of course, we read together that many were offended by his teaching. They followed him because they wanted him to be their Messiah. They desired an earthly king. They were not looking for a savior. And so when Christ began to teach plainly who he was and why he came, they began to murmur. So we read in verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said, murmur not among yourselves. And in the previous verses, 
You can say that they, they really questioned, they questioned his identity. Who is this man who speaks thus to us? Is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? And Jesus, of course, knew this. And again, he displays here that he was all-knowing. He says, murmur not among yourselves. Then he makes a profound statement in verse 44. No man can come to me. There is this coming again. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Christ is confronting these people with the very reason why they are rejecting his teaching. And in so doing, Christ makes a remarkable declaration about the radical depravity of the human heart. Because so it is. There is not one human being in the world before today or hereafter that of their own volition will ever come to this Christ. Because our carnal mind, Paul says, is enmity against God. And in John 5 verse 40, previous chapter, Christ said to the Pharisees, and you will not come to me that you might have life. So when we compare Scripture with Scripture, then we see that man's inability is not something that we can hide behind. But man's inability is a function of his unwillingness. In other words, by nature, our will is so radically opposed to God, so radically hostile to God and to His Word, that therefore we also cannot come. So we cannot come because we will not come. That makes our text so amazing. That makes the grace of God so amazing. Because God will do what no man will do of his own. God will see to it that sinners ultimately will come to His Son. And He does that by drawing them to His Son. Drawing them irresistibly by the power of His Holy Spirit. Making sinners willing in the day of His power. And the word draw here is a word that is used to describe how a fisherman in those days would bring the net to shore. And of course, he would do so carefully, but nevertheless persistently. He would draw until the net had come ashore, but he would do so wisely because if he did it violently, the net would rend and he would lose his catch. And so that's the word that's used here. So in other words, when we talk about this drawing, we must never think of God's grace as a means whereby, reverently speaking, He twists the sinner's arm. No, what He does by the marvelous work of His Spirit, He makes us willing in the day of His power. He renews us by His Spirit. And in so doing, He then draws us. He draws us unto himself. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And what a wonderful and what a comforting and what an encouraging and what a humbling truth that is. Because my dear congregation, 
if by the grace of God you know experientially what that means to come to Christ, if in your experience this has happened, that you have been so drawn to Him that you could not but come to Him, that you could not stay away from Him, there's only one explanation for it. Because God sovereignly dealt with you. Sovereignly, He renewed you. Sovereignly, He made you willing in the day of His power. By His power and by His might, He brought you to the feet of this precious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's beautiful about our text is that in our text, Christ unfolds for us and explains to us what that drawing consists of. How is it that God draws sinners to His Son? Well, He said, it, it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Christ often did this, did He not? Right? So He, he reaches back to the, the Old Testament Scriptures. And then He makes the application for the present moment. Now, this idea that all men will be taught of God, that all believers are men and women who are taught of God, is a truth that is sprinkled all through the Old Testament. So if you are taking notes, let me just give you three passages that you may just want to look up. I have no time for it now, but three passages that would affirm that. Isaiah 54, verse 13. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34, and Micah 4, verse 2. Just, that's a sampling. Another, actually, passage that we, we sang together, we sang Psalm 25. And we have that beautiful statement in Psalm 25, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will He teach sinners in the way. Which is exactly what Christ is saying here. And so the Father's method of drawing is by He causes sinners to hear, and He causes sinners to learn. So let's un try to unpack both of these important verbs. So what is the first thing that happens when the Spirit of God takes hold of a fallen son and daughter of Adam? When the Spirit of God, by His mighty and irresistible power, makes a sinner who is dead in, in trespasses and sins, when he makes that sinner alive. Well, the first thing that the Father does by His Spirit is He will open the deaf ear of that sinner. Because by nature, it is true what we read in Jeremiah 5, verse 21. Oh, foolish people! And without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Again, that's the sad reality of who we are by nature. That is our natural spiritual state. We are spiritually blind and we are spiritually deaf. And so even though we may physically be present under the proclamation of God's Word and may have heard that Word many, many times, which is true for all of us, by nature, it just goes right by us. It doesn't register. We are not really hearing what God is saying. And as we'll see in a moment, 
that will manifest itself in our life. It will manifest itself by our conduct. It will manifest itself most grievously in the fact that we do not come to Christ. But when the Spirit of God works savingly, when the Father accomplishes that work of regeneration, what's interesting here is that for both the word heard and learned, we have this unique past tense in Greek. In Greek, you have two uh, past tenses. And I'm not, give, I'm not here to give you a grammar lesson, but it is significant for our text. There is one past tense that describes what has been going on in the past. There is another past tense that is a snapshot of the past. That's called an aorist. So if you look at a photograph, you are looking at a snapshot of the past. And so in this case, Christ is referring to a specific moment, a specific moment when this hearing and this learning began. And that specific moment is the moment when the Father, by His Spirit, resurrects a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins and makes us spiritually alive. And what begins to happen? Our ears will be opened. Suddenly we begin to really hear what God is saying in His Word. That's what happened to Lydia. We read it so simply in Acts 16, verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. And here it comes, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. In other words, she was really hearing what he had been saying. Now, Lydia was a proselyte. She had interacted with the Word of God before, but on that given day, her ears were opened, her heart was opened, and she really heard what Paul was saying. She attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. A congregation, that's what God does. He opens our ears. We begin to hear His Word. And the whole purpose why he opens our ears is that ultimately his desire is to lead us to his son. That's so clear in our text. That's the father's good pleasure. That is his great objective. And so the reason why he, by his spirit, regenerates us and makes us a living soul is in order to bring us to his only begotten son. And so the Father, who gave His Son, also by His Spirit, will draw us to His Son. But in order for us to come, we need to understand what God is saying in His Word. And so the method by which He accomplishes that coming, that forsaking of ourselves, that coming out of ourselves, that taking refuge to Christ is that He acquaints us with Himself and with ourselves. First of all, He acquaints us with Himself. Because congregation, that is very necessary. And so what happens when we are regenerated? God becomes real to us. 
His word becomes real to us. What God reveals of himself becomes real to us. And so God will confront us with his holiness. He will confront us with the truth that he can by no means clear the guilty. He will confront us with the fact what it means to be a sinner and how grievously we have offended him. He will confront us with the demands of his law. In some measure, he will enlighten us to recognize what we read in Revelation 3, verse 17, where the Lord Jesus said when he wrote that letter, he says, Thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, the measure and the extent to which he does that, God is entirely sovereign. But he confronts us with enough about himself. He reveals enough about himself. He causes us to hear the truth about himself so that we recognize that we are undone before this God. That we begin to see ourselves in light of who God is. Because congregation, why would we ever desire this Savior? Why would we ever desire a crucified Savior? Unless in some measure we understand that we need such a Savior. And that's the Father's goal. The reason He is causing us to hear, the reason He opens our ears so that we will hear what He has to say in His Word is because He wants to draw us to His Son. That's His objective. That is His goal. And so by by way of application, as we also examine ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, when we come to the Lord's table, why do we come? What brings you there? Do you in some measure understand the very essence of what's set before us on that table. Congregation, have you heard the Word of God? Do you understand experientially that you need a a crucified Savior? There are still many people who are interested in Jesus for all kinds of reasons except that one. But that's not how God works. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. How can we come to a table to remember a crucified Christ, to do this in remembrance of Him, unless, in some measure, we have learned to understand by by the teaching of the Father that we need such a Savior, a crucified Savior, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. So we can put it this way that God uses His written Word. He opens our ears so that we hear what He has to say. He uses His written Word in order to lead us to the living Word. He uses His written Word to lead us to the living Word, to His well-beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this emphasizes, that the conviction of sin is never a means unto itself. It's never an end in itself. 
There is but only one reason why the Father causes you to hear. There's only one reason why He opens your ears. There's only one reason why He causes His Word to resonate within your soul, and that is to bring you to His Son. That's His goal. And that's what the Lord Jesus so clearly and unmistakably teaches in this passage. And so in John 5.25, the previous chapter, we read, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And I'm confident that every believer, when they think back in their life, you know there was a time you did not hear it. There was a time when the Word of God did not register. It went right by you. And you may not have known the exact moment when all of this changed, but suddenly God's Word became real. And you heard what God was saying. But that's why it's not just hearing. No, it's, it's more than that. The language is so precise, so significant here. It says, every man therefore that has heard and has learned of the Father. So not only is it a hearing of the Word of God, but it's a learning. It's a responding to what we hear. In other words, that hearing, that correct hearing, results in action. And so Christ here establishes an inseparable connection between hearing and learning. Now we know that when a teacher teaches... He wants to make sure that his pupils hear what he is saying, but he also wants to find out whether they are learning something from what he is saying. And so as teachers, we have various ways to try to find out whether our students are actually learning something, whether what we are teaching them is really registering, and whether that is, trans that is being manifest in the way they conduct themselves, in the which they respond to what they hear. And so it is here. That's why those two are inseparably connected. Because you know that Christ speaks of hearers of the word who are not doers of the word. Those who hear the word, but that hearing does not produce anything. Ezekiel 33, 31 they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. The foolish builders are those that hear the word and are not doers of the word. But in Deuteronomy 4, verse 14, this so applies to this passage. God says, I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me. And so God not only opens our ear, but He impacts our will by His Spirit, by His power. He transforms our will. Our will becomes engaged. And the hearing results, as we will see in a moment, that hearing will result in coming. And so that learning that Christ is talking about is the result of the, the transforming power of His Word. That's why James said in James 1, verse 22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. 
That's why I began my sermon by this illustration of, of the history of Israel. It's the, it's the Israelite that actually made his way to the tabernacle. The Israelite that would come to the altar and would come to the priest. That Israelite demonstrated that he had learned from what he had heard. And his learning was manifested in the fact that he was coming, coming to God's appointed sacrifice. Congregation, that's another question we need to ask ourselves. I need to ask myself, has the Word of God transformed your life? Is that Word transforming you? And boys and girls, I want to ask you a question. You you are growing up with the Word of God. You hear it all the time. You hear it at home when your moms and dads read the Bible or the children's Bible to you. You're hearing it in school. You're hearing it in catechism. You're hearing it here. But are you learning? Are you learning from what you hear? What, what impact is that word having on you? Is that word having such an impact on you that it compels you to flee to the Christ of whom the Scriptures speak? Ah, you see, not only is there a hearing, but by grace there will be an amen to what God is saying. And that amen in my soul will produce that going out of myself and taking refuge to God's appointed Savior, God's appointed remedy. That's what happened to Manasseh in this prison cell. We read that simple statement in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 13. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Then he knew it. He had heard about it. His parents no doubt Hezekiah and Hephzibah no doubt trained their son, but he had ignored it. He had turned a deaf ear, but now, now it registers. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Even Job had to learn a whole new level, had to achieve a whole new level of understanding about God. Listen to what he says about himself in the last chapter of Job. I have heard of thee. There you have it. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. A congregation, I would venture to say that though our circumstances may differ greatly, but every true believer wrought upon by God's Spirit will arrive at that conclusion will bring us to the place where with Job is say, now mine eye seest thee, and my ear is hearing thee, and therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And why is that so essential for us to come to that recognition? It is only then, you see, that God's appointed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will become so very precious to us. And so God, by His Spirit, makes us displeased with ourselves so that we will be pleased with Christ. He will show us how altogether unlovely we are in ourselves 
So that against the background of our vileness and our wretchedness, we see the beauty of God's appointed mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's against that background that this Christ becomes so precious, that this Christ becomes so lovely. Congregation, that becomes an experiential reality. That's not just something that we agree to intellectually. No, this becomes experientially real. And every true believer knows of that moment, knows of that place, knows of that experience, not just once, but over and over again. And that's why our entire life, we need to be convicted of our sins. That, that doesn't just happen once. Our entire life, we need to hear and learn in order that again and again, we would look to Christ alone, that this Christ would be our only hope, our only salvation. That's the Father's desire. That's His goal. That's why He teaches us. That's why He causes us to hear. He wants to lead us to His Son, to His well-beloved Son. That's His desire, that we would come to Him. And so the bottom line is, is that those who hear and learn of the Father will repent of their sins and they will believe in the Father's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that coming to Christ, it's that taking refuge to Christ, it's that coming to Him as a wretched, undone sinner in myself, looking outside of myself to Christ and Him crucified. That gives evidence that we have learned our lesson well. And again, let me emphasize, I'm not prescribing here the measure to which you have to know your own sinfulness. That's not what I'm prescribing to you, nor am I prescribing to you how lengthy your conviction of sin has to be. What matters is where does it bring you? As you know, the Puritans were fond of saying, and if they were asked, well, how much do I need to know of my sin? And the answer would be enough to see your need of Christ. That's it. That's the Father's goal. That's the Father's goal in causing us to hear and to learn, is to bring us to that place where there is but one solution for our soul, to bring us to that place where there is but one name given under heaven whereby I must be saved. And that's the Father's desire. That's His good pleasure. You know that the Father loves His Son. And all that he does, he aims for the glory of his Son. And that's why in his saving work, he will lead us to his Son. He will so work in us that his Son becomes precious. And that leads us to our third point. So we've heard about hearing and learning, how the Father causes us to hear and to learn from what we hear so that it will result in a coming to his well-beloved Son. A congregation, I've used this expression before, but let me say it again. What happens here, you see, why is it that the sinner comes to Christ? It's because the Holy Spirit, by shedding light upon God's Word, has made 
this Christ so irresistibly attractive. Irresistibly attractive. So that I cannot stay away from him. That my heart is drawn to him. That it becomes the yearning of my soul. Oh, that I might find him. To know him. You see, then that name of Christ becomes for us the only name given under heaven. Then Christ becomes precious. Then we understand the language of the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, when she, when, she, when she describes her bridegroom. And when she says, his mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. And Peter says, of course, the well-known passage, 1 Peter 2, verse 7, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. So congregation, I ask you, what do you think of this Christ? Has this Christ become altogether lovely to your soul? Has this Christ become precious? Can you in some measure understand what the poet said, give me this Jesus or else I perish? And so just as true as it is that by nature we have no interest in this Savior, that by nature we do not desire Him or the knowledge of His ways, so impossible it is for a sinner that has been made alive, that has been taught by the Father, that has heard the Father, it is impossible for that sinner to stay away from Christ. Our heart will be irresistibly drawn to Him. And so we could put it this way, that sinners who are instructed by the Father of the Son will always take refuge to the Son of the Father. Let me say that again. Sinners who are instructed by the Father of the Son will always take refuge to the Son of the Father. That's the point that Christ is making in this text. Christ is saying, when my Father teaches you, you cannot but come to me. You will come to me. And you will come to me because my Father is drawing you with the cords of his love. He's drawing you irresistibly to come to me in order to find salvation in me. And so the Father who loves His Son draws sinners to His Son. They must come to His Son. Oh, this is what Jeremiah speaks of in this wonderful passage that has been an encouragement to God's children throughout the ages. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's why it says in verse 37, we read that as well. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. In other words, Christ is saying, this will never miscarriage. Those whom the Father has given to me in all, from all eternity, those sinners will, without exception, they will always come to me. And so congregation, it is the coming to Christ. It is that coming to Him by faith. It is that taking refuge to Him, that casting myself at His feet, that coming to Him. Like the woman with the issue of blood, 
There again, you have an example. Here's a woman who heard about Jesus, who heard about the fact that whoever came to him was never sent away, never disappointed. All those miracles that you read about in the Gospels, there is this coming to Christ. Even blind Bartimaeus, who was sitting by the wayside begging, Christ did not heal him until he came to him. Even though he was blind, he said, bring him to me. So Bartimaeus had to cast away his garment, and he had to physically come to him. And so it is. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then, so beautiful, when he adds, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And, believer, and dear believer, tell me, tell me that you have not found it to be so. Has this Christ ever disappointed you? Have you ever come to him in vain? Has he ever turned you away when you took refuge to him? Not only for the first time, but over and over again. It's significant that Christ uses here the present tense, cometh unto me. And in Greek that means will repeatedly come to me, will keep on coming to me. That's why Wilhelm Brockle in his chapter about faith makes this remarkable statement. And when I read it for the first time, I, I had to look twice. And he said this, the life of a Christian is a life in which they come to Christ thousands upon thousands of times. That's literally the language he uses. So what he meant to say, that the life of the Christian is an ongoing coming to Christ. It is a daily coming to Christ. It is a coming to Him over and over again. Oh, the life of, of faith is a life in which there is this ongoing interaction between the Savior and His people this experiential relationship between Christ and His people. And why is it that true believers come to Him thousands upon thousands of times, as Brockle says, because we need Him thousands upon thousands of times. And that's what really Jesus encourages us to do in John 15, when He says, abide in me, abide in me, and I in you. He's saying, oh, my people, stay near to me. And what an encouragement it is that also as believers, we may come to him over and over again. That he never wearies of receiving us. That no matter how often we stumble, how often we fail, how often we fall flat on our faces, that we may come to him again. And that he will again receive us. And so, we're in the, and so it's a lifetime experience that the Father causes us to hear and causes us to learn so that we will come to His Son over and over again. And so we could say this, is that those who hear and learn of the Father, they cannot live without Christ. They can't live without Him. They understand Job 23, verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find Him. 
That's why in Hebrews 9, true believers are described as those that love his appearing. That's why true believers are always looking for him. They're looking for him when they read their Bibles. They're looking for him when they enter into their closets. They're looking for him when they come to the house of God. They're looking for him when the sacraments are administered. They're looking for him. Because congregation, I can assure you, once you have experienced the love of this Savior, once you have experienced that him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, you cannot be satisfied with anything else. It is Christ alone that satisfies the soul of the believer. Christ alone. And that's the Father's goal. The Father's goal is always and over and over again is to lead us to His Son. Because in His Son, He can meet us. In His Son, He can embrace us. In His Son, we find reconciliation. In His Son, there is nothing that separates us from God. That's why I began by saying that this coming to Christ is the most foundational mark of Christ, of grace. And so we can say that all religious experience that does not culminate in coming to Christ is not the saving work of the Spirit of Christ. And so conviction of sin, no matter how intense it may be, no matter how many tears may be shed, if it doesn't bring us to Christ, if it doesn't result in a coming to Christ by faith, it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. And one more thing, and we need to close here. What's also interesting, and that's of course a subject all by itself, is that the more we come to, listen carefully, the more we come to Christ, the more we will become like Christ. Try to remember that. The more we come to Him, the more we will become like Him. And that's the Father's delight. It is the Father's delight, not only that we would come to His Son and embrace His Son, but that we would also become like His Son. Because the more we resemble His Son, the more He will be glorified. And so, my dear congregation, as we examine ourselves also in light of next Lord's Day, have you heard and learned of the Father? Have you been so instructed that you could not but come to Christ? Have you been so taught that this Christ became your all in all? That this Christ has become precious to your soul? That this Christ has become the altogether lovely one? Because then there is a place for you at the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is for those who in some measure know what that means personally and experientially. It's to come to this Christ. And really our coming to the Lord's table is, again, is a coming. That's why I'm so glad we still have a, a physical table where the people of God gather round about this table. A coming, a it's a profession of faith when we get up and we come to the table we show forth the death of this Christ 
And even visibly we confess that our only hope is in this Christ. And so the bottom line question is for all of us, oh, what do you think of this Christ? What do you think of the Father's Son? There is no salvation apart from Him. If you've never come to Him, oh, I urge you to come, to come without delay, to kiss the Son, as Psalm 2 so remarkably ends, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Or we could say, blessed are all they that come to this Christ. May we experience next week at the Lord's table in a very real personal and experiential way what Christ says verily verily I say unto you he that believeth on me hath everlasting life that's his desire that also at the table we would taste something of that everlasting life that the Lord's table becomes a preview for us of that glorious future that awaits the people of God, when we shall all be gathered around the Lamb of God, when we will partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so may God give us a blessed and profitable week of preparation. And that next week we will come to the Lord's table, come to Christ, because we've heard and we have learned of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, bless thy own word. Give us ears to hear and make us willing in the day of thy power so that we will hear of thee and learn from thee and come to thy beloved Son. For that is the only reliable evidence of thy saving work in the hearts of sinners. And so we pray that also in this coming Lord's Day that we would gather round about this table to focus on this precious Christ who will be set before us also by means of the visible signs of the Lord's table. And so grant us a profitable week. And we pray that also in this coming Lord's Day we may experience thy presence and thy favor and that our needy souls may be nourished with him who is the bread of life. Bless us the remainder of this day. Bless the instruction that follows this service, also as we instruct our young children and our young people. O oh God, open their ears and make them willing in the day of thy power to take refuge to this precious Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.